All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Where, oh where are you tonight? Why did you leave me here all alone? I searched the world over and thought I found true love. You met another and <laughs> you was gone. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Show. I am Sid Dobrin, and I'm just sitting here remembering that great old ditty from Hee Haw. And yes, indeed, I have been a fan of Hee Haw since I was a kid. Did you know that Hee Haw was originally written for a Canadian audience, but they couldn't sustain an audience for the show, so the producers figured that Canadian-targeted humor would work just as well for a rural American audience, and thus Cornfield County was born. Now, I could tell you all kinds of great hee-haw trivia. I could even talk about Elvis's relationship or lack of relationship with hee-haw, though he did date two of the hee-haw honeys for a spell, not at the same time, though I'm betting he could have. But this is the Fishing Professor Show, so let me tell you a bit about hee-haw and fishing. Now, one of the funniest hee-haw skits has String Bean and Grandpa sitting on the dock talking about Junior Sample's 15-pound bass. That's a pretty good episode. String Bean also used to sing a great country song called The Fishing Song. I don't recall seeing him sing it on Hee Haw, but he did sing it on the Wilburn Brothers show. It was a chart topper, and it was about the biggin' that got away, and it has old String Bean plucking away on that five-string banjo like it's nobody's business. God, I love the lines from the song. It's always the same old story. Boy, you ought to been here yesterday. Everybody's really catching them yesterday. Everybody caught the limit yesterday. I think I'll just haul off and go fishing yesterday. And of course, how can we forget Junior samples the truth about the fish, telling us about the 22-pound red grouper he passed off as a 22-pound Lake Lanier bass. So yes, indeed, a little hee-haw fishing today. Hey, what a great show hee-haw was, and that works out well because I got a great show for you today, too. And if Junior Sample's 22-pound red grouper bass just wets your whistle for big bass, well, I got you covered today because I have got the big bass man himself, Mr. Bill Simental, on the rodcast today. And after Bill tells us about catching big bass, I'm going to tell you about Buffalo Trace Kentucky Straight Bourbon. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 Spanish mackerel lures. Hey, as always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe or follow button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And please let all your friends, family, and associates know about the Rodcast. Salute! Hey, welcome to the Rod Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, my listening crew, I hope you were ready for some high-energy fishing talk because today in the Inshore Offshore studio, I have got Bill Cimentel, the big bass zone man himself, or BBZ for short. And if you have ever heard Bill talk or caught one of his TV or YouTube videos, you know that Bill is about 250 pounds of vivacious fishing intensity. 
Bill's been a member of the Los Angeles Fire Department for more than 33 years while simultaneously maintaining a fantastic tournament fishing career and maintaining one of the most dedicated media careers to angler education out there. He's a pioneer of big bass fishing. He is the co-author of the Big Bass Zone book and of the instructional DVD Swim Bait Techniques. And he's also the host of the Crank and Cast podcast. Bill was inducted into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame in 2009. And as that induction confirmed, Bill's reputation as an angler is about more than just his fishing success. It's got a lot to do with innovation, particularly in the design of big baits. Bill's an award-winning lure and hook designer, and he is the designer of the Spro BBZ1 Rat and Doll's Hair Pathflies, and he's now working with Akuma and Fish Lab to design some remarkable lures for a variety of fisheries, including bass, crappie, panfish, pike, muskie, walleye, and as he says, anything saltwater. So it is an honor to have Bill Cimentel today here on the Rodcast. Bill, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Sid, that was the most incredible BS opening. <laughs> that was, I almost sounded impressive to myself. Where do you get all that info? <laughs> I do my background work, man. <laughs> oh, you did good on that one. Holy cow. I, it's a pleasure, man. I, you know, I see you every year at ICAST. Uh, we've, we've always crossed paths for many years and I really, uh, really dig all the stuff you do over there at the Rodcast and uh, the fishing professor, Sid. I mean, the neat thing about what you bring to the industry is you bring content that uh, informational and that helps people. So I, I really dig what you do as well. Oh, thanks, man. It's so nice of you to say. So we usually start the conversations with a bit of angler's origin story. So let's start there. Tell us about how you got introduced to fishing and how you got so addicted to it. My papa um, just grew up uh, in a time frame with uh, dad and everything. We, we grew up fishing and hunting and uh, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of stuff when I was growing up and it was just part of the times. So uh, fishing and hunting was a substance that we had to uh, keep us fed for our family and uh, through the years, just doing stuff with dad, like I said, uh, I, I went everywhere from fishing, shooting, hunting, um, but uh, the full circle came back around to uh, the passion and fishing and what I've seen and what I could understand and learn has been the, the base of, of everything. So basically it comes from Pops, man. You got to give that guy a big shout out. That's great. So shout outs to Pops. Hey, you know, Part of the Bill Cimentel lore revolves around your focus on big fish. I read somewhere that you've caught more than 500 bass over 10 pounds. What is it about big bass that draws your attention? You know, it's, how can I, this is the funniest thing, Sid. When you're little, I remember my first big bass, I caught it on a dead night crawler. It's in the book that Jones and I wrote. And I remember my dad, you know, I, I jumped out of the boat and he said, you're never going to catch anything on that dead night crawler and threw it out underneath the dock. And I caught my first big bass. It was eight, eight and a half pounder. I was like eight years old. And at the time it <clears throat> matched my dad's personal best. You know, <laughs> he, he had the big, his biggest fish at the time was eight pounds, eight and a half. And he said, you're never going to catch another bigger. You're not going to catch a bigger fish than that. You better enjoy it. This is way back. They, they didn't have replica mounts back there. So I had my first mount of an eight pounder and dad said, you're never going to do it again. The really cool thing about that, something clicked in my head. 
I don't know if it was like what kids do with parents, like when they say, don't do something, you say, oh, I'm going to do something. Um, but I started experimenting. And the cool thing about living in California, the Clear Lakes, I got to see if you're really paying attention, I got to see stuff underwater. I really started paying attention. And man, we had a lot of big fish way back in the day near here in SoCal. So I started doing everything. When dad would troll for trout, I would put on big lures and lead line them. And I was trolling for bass at 10 years old when no one was doing it with big, big Mac lures and big red fins and CD 18 Rapalas. And uh, it, it didn't take long to start hooking bigger fish. And every big fish I hooked, it, it drove that passion a little bit more because you got to remember 35, 40 years ago, we did not have, you know, broadcast. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have social media. Um, shoot. <clears throat> I couldn't even afford, you know, we couldn't afford like Bassmaster magazine at the time. So everything was basically, you had to get down and dirty and go fishing. And through the years, I have caught a lot of big fish. I, I stopped counting. I literally stopped counting when Jones and I finished the book in 2005. Um, I stopped counting my big fish. I didn't want to get to the point where that's all I revolved around and found out and dad always told me too. he says, if you always try to put yourself up on a pedestal and you start failing at something or something changes, says uh, most men out there will do whatever they can to be up there and they do stuff that's cagey and not right. And uh, I, I kind of listened to pops and I just backed off and I just enjoyed the sport. So yes, I have caught a ton of big fish. Um, I, I've, ca I've caught some monsters Every one of them were a learning experience and it just built the fire in understanding, like really trying to figure out being a, a student of the game. So yeah, yeah, I've, I've done it. I've been there. I've done it. You, you, when you were talking about that, you started to hint at something that I did want to ask you about because you've been a proponent for a while of bigger baits, catching bigger fish. And you just talked about trolling bigger lures could you talk about that philosophy, both for fresh and saltwater, the bigger baits, bigger fish philosophy? Well, you know, and I'm going to give you some, and this is great that you're asking because a lot of people have not hit what you just asked right there in this format. Big baits catch big fish. Known there's certain signatures, sounds, vibration, shadow, the influence, the sphere of influence. When you're looking at anything from freshwater to saltwater, there are times and moments that a big bait will supersede everything out there to catch the biggest fish swimming. But there's also a key, and this is why I love fishing and people that do try to follow me and listen to what I'm saying, is it's not always about big baits. It's all about perception of what fish are looking at. It's through the eyes of the fish. So. And all those big fish that you said I've caught over 10 pounds, I think you would be blown away that a quarter, maybe even close to a half, were caught on micro baits, mini jigs, stuff that's a 16th ounce and 8th ounce crappie jig back in the day. I've got fish up to 18 pounds on them, you know, little teeny drop shots, small little plastic, stuff that you would not even comprehend to catch big fish. So, if somebody who's really trying to look for a personal best, trying to catch a bigger fish, always increasing the size of the lure will give you a higher percentage to bypass the smaller fish for the majority and target bigger fish. 
but I'm, I'm a different duck. And, and if you've seen, and you watch what I I've said a lot of times, I hate the word about you have to catch a 10 pounder to catch a big fish, to be, you know, a trophy angler. I threw that out a long time ago. I know a lot of the big bait guys are probably upset. It's your biggest fish. If you've got a five pounder and you can go throw a crappie jig and catch a five and a half, six pounder, and that's your biggest fish, that's your next level, you do it. If you've caught an eight or nine pound fish and you're looking for a bigger fish, start increasing the size of your baits, really start being a student of the game and look through the eyes of the fish, you're going to start catching bigger fish. You're not going to catch a lot of them, but if you pay attention, you get in school, sit down, listen to the teachers, the fish, they're going to tell you a lot really quick. So I want to, I want to pick up on that because in your book, big bass zone, catch monster bass, you put aside a lot of conventional wisdom about bass fishing. And instead of writing about how anglers have talked about bass fishing, you look at what the bass themselves can teach us as anglers in order to target and catch bigger fish. Could you talk a bit about what that new approach to thinking about bass provides us as anglers? It's everything. I think like, I'm going to sit here, Sid, and I'm going to tell you, I know nothing on fishing. Every day I'm learning something. And anybody that says they know everything out there is full of BS, okay? What I was fortunate enough when I started fishing, and I grew up fishing out of a nine-foot Sea Eagle blow-up boat, catching 50-pound limits. This is pre-swim baits back in the day on crawdads and, and water dogs and sculpins and, and doing stuff. And what happened is through that time, I really started, you know, I always questioned myself, like, what do I have to do? And I listened and said, here's the funny thing. And I know you talk to a lot of guys. I hunt for big fish. I'm a big fish hunter. I go out there. No, we're not. We don't have a weapon. We don't sit on a perch. We don't wait for them to come to a certain thing. We don't shoot them. What we're trying to do is create the illusion of realism. You have to really change your entire focus and look through the fish's eyes. And this happened years ago when I sat down, a lot of it happened with Mike Jones. <clears throat> I went out fishing. He was writing for Bassmasters when I was doing Bassmasters back in the, the mid early nineties. And he was around with all the big fish guys down here in California. And he called BS on me. He goes, dude, I, he goes, I've been out with all of them. What they say is one thing and what they do is completely different. And there's a lot of stuff, misconceptions, and he got on my boat. And when he got on my boat and I said, I'm going to show you how to look through the eyes of the fish, that changed everything. And I, and I give credit. And there's two guys, George Kramer and Mike Jones. They both told me, they said, Bill, you're going to die one day and you're going to go to the grave with all this information and you're not going to be able to pass it on to anybody. And the moment when Jones says, I don't want to hear A and I don't want to hear Z. I want to hear everything in between of what you're thinking in your head. And when I started twisting around and saying, it's not me, what I'm trying to do is look through the eyes of the fish and see what they're thinking. When an angler can do that, and I don't care if you're wahoo fishing, I don't care if you're bluefin, I don't care if you're bass fishing, crappie, you name it, fish are predators. And here's the thing, you and I are a predator. If we went hunting, true hunt, like duck hunting or something, and you sit in a blind and you're setting up for certain flyaways or, you know, you're out there, um, shoot, even if you're, you're snorkeling and you're, you know, you're, you're shooting the spears at fish, that's a different approach. You're sitting in certain things. 
But when you're above water and you have to create the illusion to make the fish out there, you're not tricking them to do anything. The anglers that say they trick them or hunt for them, they've missed the whole picture. They're in a completely 1950, 1960, 1970 mind frame. We are in a whole different world. And when you're able to twist things around and start looking through the fish's eyes and go, what do they see? So, so you ever duck hunt? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. You sit in a blind, right? Early yep. morning, you're sitting there and you're, 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 you're getting ready to shoot and the sun's coming up and you're going, okay. And you're talking to your dad off to the side. Hey, we got the ducks out there and whack, 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 whack. you're doing the stuff and you're a hunter and you got your hat on. And I noticed this when I duck hunted, when I was a kid, this is how I turned everything into fishing. You see a shadow come across the water and you, you look like this and instantaneously as predators, you go, where's the sun coming up? You turn your head, you look, you find the sun, you triangulate where the sun is. Where's that bird in the air? How is it throwing the shadow? And within milliseconds as a predator, you could focus, boom, you see the bird, you follow through, you take it down. Do you know bass do the same exact thing? People cannot change that whole thing around and just go, okay, I'm the bass underwater. I got a hat on, which is I'm underneath the tree. I throw, and here's the thing. I'm going to throw a bait this big, Sid, right? What kind of shadow does that throw? If you understand the triangulation of the sun and how that shadow of that bait transmits down to the bottom of the water, you, and the clarity, you could definitely fish a bait from zero to 20, 30 feet deep, even undercover, because the shadow of the bait will go across the bottom. When it does that, the fish will come out because they're like us shooting ducks. They're coming out. They're trying to triangulate. They'll eat the shadow, which I've shown people fish eating shadows all the time. And then they go, we just got duped. And they turn around and you see them come up in the water column and smash your topwater bait, a 12-inch swim bait. That's the difference. That's what, when people really ask like, hey, you know, we want to change our mindset and everything else. You literally have to look through the fish's eyes and start questioning everything. Temperature, how should they feel? Is it too dark a water? They're using more of their lateral line or is it clear water? Are they more visually sight fishing? Insight fishing, what are they targeting? What kind of bait? How is the bait moving? Your bait in the water the shad, the crawdads, the sculpin, how do they move? Because the more you can mimic, copy that, that's how close you get to creating the illusion of realism. And that's how you turn around and going, oh, I caught a couple fish over 10 pounds. Or you go, no, I've caught so many fish that I stopped counting in 2005. It sounds kind of cocky and that's why I stopped doing it. But that's the difference is when you can change the way you look and who you look through look through the fish. That is fantastic. And you, you know, you're already anticipating, I was going to ask you in a little bit, because a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this shadow theory. And so I was really eager today to get you to talk about this shadow theory and how we apply that. And I love that you've already gotten into that a little bit, but do you want to talk a little bit more about shadow theory? I, I think it's, it's one of the most untapped techniques of Part of the ingredients of building a cake, part of the ingredients of being successful is understanding there's different layers in fishing. Fresh to salt water. The weird part is the, cl the clearer the water, the more impact shadows have on everything you do. People don't get it. 
because people are one dimensional. They look at a bait. This is, I told this years ago, when you look at a bait, like a, a six or a 12 inch bait, anglers will pick it up and look at it one dimensionally. They will not turn it around and say this six inch bait is literally only an inch and a half. At what angle? Where, what is being seen in this whole thing? Well, with that being said, shadows are the, are the same thing. And I learned years ago. So real quick, went to uh, Lake Mead back in the day, used to throw black buzz baits, middle of the day. Why black? Great's the best shadow. Sun straight up. So in shadow theories, what I'm trying to do is have people understand to use key elements. Number one is their body because their body standing, sitting or whatever is a sundial. It's instantaneously above water will tell you what the shadows look like underwater. So if you're six foot one and you find a break line and it's clear water and it's 20 feet deep and you find a 20 to 26 foot drop, that six foot line, whatever the sun is during that day, you can tell what the shadow is doing in 26 foot of water. You can tell if it's a short shadow or if it's a long shadow. Shadows now, when they become consistent, are tides. Every day when the sun comes up over the earth, depending if it's plane of ecliptic, summer or winter, usually summer, the sun's high. So your shadows are quick. Wintertime, they're little, the sun's lower in the horizon, depending where you're at. So you have elongated shadows. You could target fish anywhere and everywhere off shadow tides. You fish saltwater, right? You fish stuff where you got tides coming in and out. Incoming tide, ooh, it's getting, because you're compressing everything. The bait's coming in, everything. They compress into shadows. They, and what, what are shadows? Shadows are structure and cover elements. So when you compress that and you start layering this stuff over the top, you literally could time your big fish catches. And <laughs> I see you, you're looking like you, I could talk for hours on this because it's so, it's so weird. You ocean, you have on the back and people can't see this, but we're doing a zoom call and on the back of your photo, you know, I have a messy room behind me because this is my work. You're like, this is my office, but I'm looking in the back of your, your boat and your photo. And what I see, I see very little waves. You're fishing ocean. You got some rigs out there. It looks like you even have a kite out there, everything else. But with that, you have boat turbulence. That turbulence alone going across the water, that white water is creating a shadow. Okay. What happens with shadows? You get flying fish, you get bait fish. Everything will start lining up. You, you create your own current by doing that. Your boat's creating a shadow. You're positioning fish. Fish are going to be following your boat shadow down below you on certain side, back or whatever. When you start really comprehending on this and then you're going, shoot, what else? Oh, we're going to throw out a big skirt with, you know, a, a, a big, uh, like an A-rig, you know, what we use in freshwater and you guys with all the little skirts, what's it creating? Mass, big baits, it's creating shadows. That way, 40 feet down, 60 feet off to the side, if the sun hits it right, that bait itself is creating a focal point. The shadow of the bait, depending how big it is and the color, that thing can go 10, 15, 20, 100 feet away from the boat. And all it has to do is cross the eyes of a predator and you get him to turn around and now he's coming in. So there is so much in shadows that gets me jacked because for everything I know, and I laugh, I like, I watch fish bust. I watch fish eat. I watch it underwater, above water. What lures do 
all this stuff. I'm watching this stuff go on, Sid. And I turn around and I look at other anglers and guess what they're doing? Whistling, talking to their buddies. Oh, they missed a fish. They had a follow. And then they throw with a big bait and they throw back. And I tell my tournament partner, I go, oh my gosh, that guy just had a big, big fish follow. And he goes, well, what's going on? I said, don't, don't act like we're watching. Just wait, wait, wait. Why? Because what happened is that guy just pulled a big fish off a spot where that fish wants to eat, right? Well, he pulled him out to open water. Guess where the fish is? Sitting in the shadow of his boat behind him in the back corner. And the guy's going to throw another 20 times up on the point. The fish is behind him sitting in open water in the shadow. When he leaves, we turn around. We put our boat on the shore. We throw where his boat's at. We pull the fish right back in using that bait into a funnel where that fish wants to eat. We catch big fish of the tournament. We make money. And the guys are going, how'd you catch the fish? Oh, I was drop shot in 30 foot of water. <laughs> it's, yeah, you got me jacked up on that one. Well, you know, you, you, you were telling me about shadow theory a couple of weeks ago. And one of the ways that it really registered for me is when we're fishing the flats, that when birds fly over and the shadow of a bird goes over a school, you know, it's called when we see redfish doing, it's called humping. And what they're doing is reacting to the shape of the shadow coming across, not reacting to the bird. And so that really got me thinking more about what you were saying about shadow theory and how, you know, sometimes we use it and sometimes we just tend to let it go and not think about the shadow that the lure is causing, causing or anything like that. So you, you bring up a, a great thing. And I think I remember talking to you with this and an angler came up to me and he was a trout fisherman. This was at ICAST a couple of weeks back, a month ago. And I said, I'll tell you something about shadows, because I believe you just walked away and a guy goes, well, we just fish kind of trout and stuff. And I heard you talking to Sid about shadows and that. I don't think it plays in our park. And I'm like, going, well, did you know I grew up building fly rods and hand tying flies when I was eight with my dad and grew up in the serious trout fishing? And I said, do you know that when you're fly fishing and you're mending line, okay, and people can't think of this. So, and you fly fish, I mean, you do all kinds of fishing. You ever watch a fish in the stream and you see them kind of jet out to the, to the current break and then they jet back over to the, the deadfall or the seam? What are they doing? What are they looking for? They didn't come up to the surface. They're down low. Well, there's a leaf that floated across the surface. So it created a shadow. Depending on which angle the sun is, that fish comes out to see if it's real or not. Mind you, understanding shadows and being able to have a bait behind your shadow as it approaches the fish this is serious stuff if you think about it what it does it sets the fish up for success for getting its bait it, it, it creates the real life illusion that a fish is going to come out look at a shadow of a nymph or a fly on the surface or, or the bug or a moth it says not real shadow it looks up and then all of a sudden you see the trout come up to the surface and takes your bait but do you know if you don't mend your line right, if you don't have the right fluorocarbon, if you don't do this stuff and the shadow of the line crosses the eyes of the fish prior to your bait, you spook them. So when you're red fishing and you guys throw out at a certain line, how many times have you thrown out and the sun's on your left hand side and you throw to the left hand side, but your line or the lure, just like the bird, crosses a couple of the eyes of the fish and they blow out and they take off and you go, oh, what just happened? understanding that takes you to another level that no one can comprehend because you, you just thought you just made it like, Oh, they just blew out. 
No, there's magic. And that old saying when you're in school, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. If you know what is negatively affecting fish and how they feed, what is the positive side of shadows? And how do you catch fish that no one else will ever see or catch? That's what I love doing. I love going behind people. And, and like I said, fresh or salt water, creeks or ponds, shadows are magical. I think it's an untapped um, conversation that we should have. And there's things in it that will take any angler to another level, no matter what you're doing. That's just fantastic. You've had me thinking about this for a month now. So I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about it. And I know you and I both could talk more about it. But let's get to some other subjects too, because you've done so much other stuff. And one of those things I really want to talk about, of course, is the BBZ One Rat, which debuted at ICAST in 2017. Um, I was just remembering the first time you and I met was in 2017 at ICAST. You were with Spro and we're introducing the BBZ One Rat. And you were wearing that rat cap, and I've teased you about that hat every year since, you know, up to this past year, and you actually had it with you this year. And we'll get to the rat hat story in a minute, but let's start with the BBZ1 rat lure first, and the new iteration of the Fish Lab Bio Rat. Tell us about the rat lure and the inspiration for that lure, and here what I really want to hear you talk about and share with our listeners is that great information you told me recently about global populations of rats and their role as fisheries prey, because that was just mind boggling. <laughs> you know what? It's sometimes Sid, it cracks me up when you, you ever go into a place and you talk to a fisherman and they just blow you off and you're telling like really good stuff. And most people walk away and no one keys in on stuff. And you know, the true fisherman, you know, the fishing professor you know the guys who are student of the game when you drop nuggets out there and they come back a month later which i've had there's not a lot of them trust me a handful that come back and go uh i listened <laughs> no one else heard it i listened so i do i and i would never i've been in this industry for a long time i was with spro for many years i i think we we ended up getting uh, the rat uh i won best to show with it right back and i think it was like 2000 14 or something it was it was back their ways they didn't want to come out with it and um there's a couple weird things you got to look at it so i did a bunch of research i was building rat jitterbugs and rat type of wake baits for years all the way back from my dad so some of the original wood plugs you see in the book from 1985 dad and i were building baits like that back then all kinds of baits so i was always tinkering with stuff what I wanted to do is I started doing some research. <clears throat> I wanted to come out with the bait that in the market, and this is what we did a lot with Spro, and we're definitely doing it even better now with Fish Lab, is come out with baits that are realistic. Try to get away from the illusion baits. And in doing that, really start doing your research on what kind of forager is out there. What do fish eat? What, what is... What is something that is a global type of bait that can be used from here to Australia, you know, or China or wherever you want to go and catch fish. And uh, the more I did some research, a buddy of mine had some rats and stuff. And trust me that I did my research and found out that everywhere in the world, a rodent from a field mouse to a kangaroo rat to uh, a rat itself, a wharf rat, they're everywhere in the world. Any big farms back east where they have the fields, there are millions of rats and, and mice. 
And guess what? They go plow the things and those suckers take off running. And guess what? They jump in the canals and they go in the ponds and the fi- it's, it's a food source and the fish demolish them. And then I started researching even more. Oh, wait a minute. Ocean fishing. Do you know that rats could swim like 10 foot underwater? No, they I swim. did not know that. <laughs> they, they, they could swim underwater. They could grab stuff. They have hands. They could pick. Why do you think in New York, you know, people get rats up through their sewer systems? Like there's things that are clicking and I'm like, I'm getting chills like going, oh my gosh, here, here's an untapped bait, a food source for peacock bass, wolf fish. Hal- I've caught halibut on a topwater rat on the surface, you know, and you look at the wharfs and you look at anywhere where there's rocks, there's rats. So I wanted to come out with the bait. At one time they said, no, found out that Asian people, a lot of people, over they don't like rats. They told me, he said, hey, why don't you build a duck or build a snake, build something else? And I'm telling, I'm like, I'm telling you, this is it. I'll do all the research. I'll do everything. I got the patents. I did the whole thing. And it had been one of their best-selling baits across, you know, across the world. I documented fish. I don't think there was a fish I really didn't document catching on one of my old baits. So when we came to, uh, I left them recently and we came to Fish Lab. <clears throat> and the first thing they said, hey, Bill, the BBZ line with this, the swim baits and the fat flies and all the stuff you've done for years, everything you've done has been like really thought out. And we want to do that for Fish Lab. And the cool thing about the guys at Fish Lab, at the old place, I was only within a linear. I could only do, I was only the big bait guy or the only swim bait guy. And as you could probably see, I had a lot of tricks up my sleeve and I, I fish for anything that bites. And, you know, Mike Bennett, Mark Rogers, uh, Daniel Romas, all the guys were at Fish Lab. We've all fished against each other for 25 years. And I walked in and they go, let's see your book. And I open up the book and they're going, you haven't showed anybody this stuff. I go, nope. And they go, can you make a rat better than what you've done before? And I go, yeah, I go, there's one that I've been sitting on right after the first one is I said, I wanted to do a buzz bait. I'm old school. I wanted to do a true double, double propped rat bait that I could try to walk the dog with. I could shoot, chug it. I could shoot water across it. I could dead stick it. I want details even better than I did before. And I said that the big thing is, and we all discussed about it. They said, you're going to do a wake bait because you're really known for that. And I said, I want that to be number two. I said, if we come out with something too, like what I've done before, you know, Sid, you know, people talk is like, ah, and they said, you know, is Bill really doing this stuff? Is he working with the team or are they all coming together to come out with really cool stuff? Or are they just cut and pasting and at fish lab? There's no cutting and pasting. So we came out with the new wake rat, the, uh, buzz bait and uh the the, re- the the stuff right now is i'm already getting people from from my cast they're sending in photos of big muskies small mouth i mean the things the thing's doing its job but this is just to start sid because round two there will be a wake bait next year fish lab it'll have the look it'll have the walk it'll have the talk and it'll catch fish so what we're trying to do at fish lab is the whole team wants to be able to build a set of tools, no matter where you're at, fresh or salt water, that you know better than I do, fish change every five minutes. They might be on the surface and want to wake bait. They might want to buzz bait next 15 minutes. Two hours later, they're down 25 feet and they want to eat some type of plastic, you know, on a drop shot. So 
that's what we're doing. But yeah, that's where the, the rat came from. And I'm telling you what, I did some research and you get a lot of people say, nah. And then you get a few people like you sit there and scratch their head and go, holy cow, this guy, you know, he's onto something. It's legit. Well, it, makes, it makes sense. I mean, and I, I do have to tell you, when I hear you talking about rats, all I can think about are those great rat movies like Willard from 71 or Ben from 1972. <laughs> or how about Rat Catcher 1 and Rat Catcher 2 and The Suicide Squad or Ratatouille, The Secrets of Nim. Oh, Man, I love Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to rat you out, but you may be as much a rat expert as a fishing expert. You're like sock ratties. How about that? <laughs> that was very clean. That was very clean. Um, have, you ever, have you ever eaten a rat? No. Oh, my God. You know what? Surprisingly, you know what? I'll tell you the truth. My dad was a chef. So, and we were poor. I don't want to say poor, but we lived. My dad might have fed me rat. I don't know. You know, he was a good enough cook. It, it could have been a hot dog hamburger. It could have been. What, what do you call a rat with a wooden leg, Bill? Oh, my gosh. A pie rat. <laughs> okay. Why, why was, why was, why was the rat afraid of the river? I don't know. It's all the catfish. Oh. <laughs> I can go on, man. <laughs> I, you know what? I know you got a list there. You're going to kill me. I'm not good with right, well, So tell, tell us the story about the rat hat, because it's been like eight, nine years. I've been teasing you about that thing. No, you know, it was one of those things that, uh, and you know, I rebuilt, built it for a fish lab, you know, in life and in fishing and everything else, it's press, it's promotion, it's, it's making people turn their heads around and, and question, question stuff. And I remember sitting down building that hat the first time, and that was no easy feat to try to visually try to take a hat and go, okay, how do I make a rat out of this <laughs> and make a tail? You know, I have the patent on the tail and the design and everything. Like, how do I do it? That thing took me a week to build. <laughs> so in anything, I know one of my, some of my good friends, they go, you know, they seen the hat and they go, Bill, you know, what's funny is if people really looked at what you've done fishing wise, what you did, you know, writing and what you're doing and for like designing baits and everything else. I had a lot of people that didn't expect anything less than that hat. They, they're like, oh, and that thing was, it's like some of your lures. It catches you off guard, but then it makes you question Hey, you know, we might be not, we might be looking at something completely wrong because we're still not looking through the eyes of the fish. And that's what that rat hat was all about is to make people question what they really need to be looking at. So that's great. I love that hat. Love that hat. So let's get back to some lures. And you, you mentioned that you're a wake bait guy. You're also a big swim bait guy. Could you talk about why you're dedicated to swim baits and what are some of the strategies you recommend for using swim baits, both fresh and saltwater? Um, it comes down to a forge uh, in the book. And I'll, Jones and I talked about this a lot. I always look at a fishery. When you break it down, you want to look at, first of all, what, what type of predators are in there? You know, are you fishing a farm pond? Are you fishing a hundred acre place? Um, do they do trout plants? Do they have crawdads? Do they have, you know, water dogs or sculpins? So I'm always looking at <clears throat> lakes that, the bigger fish have a bigger meal. We used to call them back in the 90s, vitamin T, trout. So California at one time, we created our own Pavlog's dog. So Pavlog's dog is you put one or two things together consistently, you create the, the salvation, <clears throat> they get hungry. Well, what happens is fishing games starting in second week of October, this is 25, 30 years ago, when that water temperature started dropping down in the 70s, 
they started planting trout every two weeks. I mean, they were pretty consistent, you know, back in the day. But the funny thing is, is people started, they, they had a misconception that once they started planting trout, that the fish would automatically key in on them. So I don't know if you know about this, but I sat down with the guy Pete Cormier years ago and I built monster tubes, big old, big tiger tubes. Actually, Lindy Little Joe used to produce them for me. And people don't know that I was a monster. We're talking tubes that were anywhere from six to 15 inches, as big as your forearm. And found out in the fall, this big bait is when those bass would come in looking at the trout, they were still keyed in on the shad. So these big tubes, which, which they were, as you created the illusion of realism as they were slivers of a bait ball. So if you ever watched a bait ball, even out in the ocean, they go around, a fish goes through, or one of the shad or bait fish gets funky and it darts off to the side and you see a stringer come out and it goes like this. And then it comes back into the bait ball. Well, I created the illusion of realism with the tube. The tube worked, the big baits worked from like October to January because it took a really good two months for fish to really key in on the trout, the Pavlov's dog. So as the, as the shad would go deeper in the water column, because the wintertime, those bigger fish stayed up because they were having vitamin T. They had trout delivered to them every two weeks and found out that you could keep increasing the size of your bait. So back, I'm talking 85, we were looking at eight to nine, 10 inch baits. But man, when we started getting in the nineties, one of my biggest fish I have here on the wall is uh, I was doing some stuff with Sean Donovan, who just passed away with Optimum Swim Bait. And I was helping him. We were doing the, some big swim baits back in the day. And we used to call stuff called limousines. So the Castake soft baits, the Optimum stuff, we used to cut the baits in half with butter knives and start increasing the size. So a nine inch bait, we can make 12 to 15 inches. The bigger the bait, the bigger the trout plants the bigger the fish. So my 1975, my, my fish that is almost 20 pounds was on a limousine optimum that was over 12 inches long. Wow. So, so the history of big baits, and I think what people have lost sight of and people who really know me, who watch me competitively and stuff, I don't tell a lot of people if, if they listen to your show, they're going to find out some secrets right now. <laughs> they should be listening, but our, our system right now with quagga lockdowns in California, the, there's not the trout plants. There's no consistency with the food base. Pavlog's dog is not there like it used to be. So when people go, Hey, I'm going to go to California right now to go catch some big, you know, 10 pound largemouth bass. I'm going to tell you straight out. I wouldn't come to California and I'm a California guy. I said, I would be looking around any state out there that plant trout regularly, that have a Florida strain, even big spotted bass, big northern strain. Those are going to be the most productive places. So what happened is the last 10, 15 years, as the trout plants diminished and the lakes weren't taken care of in California, these fish have gone back to a more substantial food base, which is like shad. You know, they're, they're going for the shad. Clear Lake is a special lake in California with the hitch. And hitcher, a, a soft spined bait. It's like a, a carp type of thing that these big fish will chew on. So Clear Lake is a, a, a special type of lake in California that will always have the capability of catching big fish with big baits. But I, I think people have to really understand now, do some studying on the lake that you're fishing. And if you have a lake that does have <clears throat> big bluegill, big crappie, 
uh, monster shad, American shad, they do trout plants. If you're catching smaller fish, start looking at your tackle box, get on the internet, start buying bigger baits. That's like one of the baits we did for fish lab is the six inch BBZ gizzard shad. It is an all around bait that will mimic a, a crappie, a bluegill, a gizzard shad, a bull shad. And just increasing the size of your baits in a lot of your local ponds, you're going to start catching bigger fish. But um, throwing big baits exclusively for big fish, I'll be the first one to tell you, it's it's not the same. Nobody's going to tell you that because it's all an ego-driven thing. But if you told me, hey, Bill, you got to go throw a, a big bait to go catch a 10-pounder in one of your local lakes, I, I, I say it, it might take me a month. It might take me a month to catch one if I ever do. So things change. So you got to be smart enough to change with the environment, the times, and a lot of other people won't ever tell you that. That is really, really smart way of looking at things. So you've also been doing some soft body work lately. And um, I know that you've got the new fish lab nature series, both the kicking craw and the flutter nymph. And you were showing me some stuff with the flutter nymph. Could you talk about those two lures? And one of the things that we talked about, and I'd like to hear more about, is transitioning that flutter nymph into saltwater situations. <laughs> was it you I talked to? I mentioned it to somebody. Um, it was me. <laughs> so, you know, the, the cool thing is, is in fishing, like I said, and I'm always going to go, I keep preaching this, and I know it sounds redundant, but you always have to go back looking through the eyes of the fish, the predator itself. So when I sat down with Mike Bennett and the team down there at Fish Lab, and they're talking about coming out. Mike and Daniel, they were already working on the kick and craw, which is an incredible crawdad type of bait that can be used in heavy cover or open water for multiple different situations for, you know, um, techniques, technique based. But um, they're sitting at me and they're looking at me and they're like, you know, do you have anything to bring to the table? And I go, yeah, I got a whole lot. I go, we're talking about creature baits, right? A creature bait, which is say like a, you know, a reaction innovation, uh, sweet beaver, number one bait. You got to give the guy credit. You know, I mean, he did a phenomenal job, but I think what happened 25 years ago when they came out with that is people, fishermen locked into a word of creature. And now when you talk to bass fishermen across the U S and they go, Hey, you got a creature bait. Let's go flip and pitch and catch some big fish. <clears throat> what the heck are they throwing? And that was my question to the table, the round table at Fish Lab is I'm like going, I'm getting tired. What is a creature bait? I'm the guy that we're supposed to have the science of the strike. We're supposed to look through the fish's eyes. What the hell are we making? I said, I know what fish are eating. They're eating dragonflies. They're eating mayflies. They're eating stone stoneflies. They're eating blackbirds. Oh, wait, they're, they're eating frogs. So my first drawing, I pulled up to Mike and Mike just started laughing I go, who actually has a frog that is a flipping pitch, like a punch bait? I go, there's nothing out there. And I said, if we're trying to create the illusion of realism, why don't we get back to it? And everybody was like, heck yeah. So in doing that, that's when we I pull out the drawings and Hide over in Japan, he's one of our team members. He's one of the designers as well. So I get credit to everybody because it, it, it truly is a, a team effort with Fish Lab. And we all bring in our, our ideas and everything else. But I am a freak of one of those that <clears throat> I always try to separate illusion from realism, you know, and, and what fish see. So we came out with the, the flutter nymph. And 
basically it's a dragonfly. I mean, to the detail, when you look at this puppy, it's unbelievable. And then Hedy and stuff, they say, hey, you know what? Let's make this a swim bait. Let's make this, not only do we get the realism part of an overall look, but the sound signature and stuff, I said, let's make this a swim bait. Let's put, let's put boot tails on the wings. Never been done before. So when, you, when I threw this in the tank, I remember you're looking at it, you're like, oh, that's really cool, Bill. But um, yeah, and I, I, think I, I think it was you, because I talked to a lot of people, and I was like, you're like, yeah, but that really doesn't fly very well in, in saltwater down here. And I go, well, well, what would you throw? And what did you say? You said a shrimp. I said, like, like I'll throw a shrimp that has like feet kicking underneath it. And what did I do? You dropped that in the tank. <laughs> I, I, I turned the rig. I turned it around. I took it off a dart head. I put it upside down and I brought it across the bottom and it looks like a friggin' shrimp kicking, swimming across the bottom. So that is where when an angler, you or me or somebody that's really, really trying to take things to a new level, there's always a fine line of realism. But Sid, when you're an angler and you can understand techniques versus tools so this is a tool you have a certain technique can you take a tool and change the perception and create a different realism bait out of a bait that's a dragonfly but by turning it upside down you create the illusion of realism now it looks like a shrimp darting across the bottom and that's the difference of what i love bringing to the game that i <clears throat> that i don't hear from a lot of other people but I get to talk to guys like you and other women who just love fishing and they want to go, they want to go deeper. They always question. That's what we're doing at fish lab is we're questioning it. And I tell you what, I, I think I gave you a bag of baits, but yep. Yep. You, I'm waiting for you to send me a picture of some. Oh, uh, I'm going to film with them. I'm going to, did you just say you other women? Did you just call me a woman? <laughs> no, like, no. Like women, <laughs> I do a lot of stuff. We did a uh, stuff with women in the outdoors, my good yep. friend Steve Davies for um, Team Davies Drop Shot. <laughs> so we do, I, I found out that I think women are, I don't think they give people, they don't give them enough credit. Like there are some unbelievable anglers out there and I don't see them enough. I, you, you, I want them, you hear them on the side. I talk to them. Christine Fisher, she's over there fishing the the kayak, a world championship for Pike right now. She's an unbelievable stick. She called me. I remember sending her a book. We talked fishing. It is so cool that men and women, there is a certain one percentile of anglers, no matter who you are, that the light bulb clicks on and they excel. They take things to another level. And that's what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to open up the door for more people out there to, to question themselves and go, I'm kind of sucking right now. I want to catch some bigger fish or I want to see something new. I will show you something new. Man, Bill, this has just been fantastic. And as always, I just love listening to you share all your angler knowledge. I love your videos and everything you do. Now, as a wrap up, I have a tradition here on the Rodcast of asking my guests about their grail fish. And given just the vast array of species and big fish you've caught over your career, I have to believe that there's still a bucket list fish for you out there, a fish you just really want to catch. So, Bill, what's your grail fish? Oh, Sid, I, I suck. And I'll tell you what. <laughs> when I was 13 years old, I wanted to be a fireman. So I started volunteering as a fireman when I was 13. 
and I lived at the fire station for, for years and I became a full uh, paid LA city fireman. When I turned 19, I turned 20 out in the field and I just retired. And the thing about having a true career job to protect the family and, and the citizens and, and my future retirement and everything else is I did not have a lot of time to go fish and do stuff that I wanted to. I started Bassmasters and the time I spent away from my job, helping people and my family, um, it hurt. And like, I, I, I didn't want to be that type of person. So I cut back on a lot of things I could have done. I've missed out on a lot of cool fishing. My grail fish, I want to catch a monster golden Dorado. I want to catch like a 40 or 50 pound Murray cod. I'm going to tell you the truth. I fish ocean fish and stuff. I have not caught a bluefin tuna. I have not caught a wahoo. You know, I've caught some big halibut. I've caught some big white sea bass and big yellowtails, but it's time. And, and if we're going to say anything, like I said, with the, the, the fishing professor and the broadcast and what we're trying to do to anglers out there is start, I would tell them or anybody to start setting goals early because you just don't know when life's ticket is going to disappear or you're going to hurt where you can't do stuff. I have so many bucket list fish, Sid. I would love to come down there and fish with you down, down in Florida and get on. I've never caught a kingfish. I've never done. I've, I haven't done a lot of the stuff um, just because of my job and my career. So I am a very unfortunate fisherman, but in one aspect, it's given me a lot of time when I've been at the station and fighting fires and doing stuff or at home working to think about fishing and to become a better student. So maybe with my knowledge, hopefully, and what you're doing, hopefully we give back to young anglers and other anglers out there for them to go catch their big, you know, their bucket list fish a lot easier. So I have a long way to go, my friend. That's, the, know, truth. That's the honest truth, man. I mean, I'm not going to bullshit you. That's, I'm missing out on a lot, man. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so moved by that in so many different ways. You know, on, on the one hand, of course, you know, sincere gratitude for the service you provided, you know, as a, as a, a firefighter, you know, and the honesty about your, your fishing. And I have to tell you, a lot of people do say, you know, the bluefin tuna, that's a bucket list for a lot of people. And it's harder and harder because that fishery has been so you know, over, overfished, uh, you know, around the world. But I do have to say, I think you're the first person that's ever mentioned a Murray cod as, as a bucket list fish. With that, okay, <laughs> when I did my research on rat fishing and stuff, and I'm like going, I know those suckers eat, I know they eat rats. I, I mean, this thing's going to blow them apart. And I remember within like the first six months, these guys, and I forgot his name and I, and I feel real bad, but he is a stick over there. And they were sending me pictures of like 40 and 50 pound Murray cod on the surface, top water. So we were looking at freshwater grouper, you know, on top water. I'm telling you what, that would make you poop. Like if you're at night and you hear a boom and you set into it and you had oh hell Mary, that would be awesome. And then, but that goes right into like the, the, the golden Dorado, you know, or, you know, any of the other species. I have not caught, I've caught big Northern pike. I've never caught a muskie. I need to get with Spence Petros or Al Linder or something and say, say hey, get, get Al Linder or John, John Mazurkowitz, you know, yeah, yeah. John, yeah, Mur yeah, yeah. yeah. will get you on that. <laughs> so I, I literally, and, and that's why I say, I really don't know a lot. I, I truly am like, I'm still a student in the game and, and I hope people can understand that you don't have to be, you know, I, 
I, I look at myself kind of like a jack of all trades. I would love to be a better fisherman in so many different categories, but life has a funny way of dealing cards. And like I said, if I could tell anybody out there, every moment you're on the water, look past your own eyes, educate yourself, question everything and make time, make time for your family. For I screwed up on my family. I should have being a fireman and what I did, I, you know, I should have spent more time with the family, you know, and you always have those regret, regrets. And a lot of my regrets too, is not being able to go travel and fish, you know, monster smallies up in Michigan, you know, I, I've done some really cool stuff, but there's a lot I'm missing my friends. So I hope that what we're teaching people right now is to get them off their butts after they listen to your uh, broadcast and go out there and start catching bigger fish, you know, Oh, that, is just, that is just so fantastic. That, that that's 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 the perfect wrap up. You should be doing the wrap up for my show every week. That's just that's just great. I don't so, have your voice, dude. You have such a killer <laughs> voice, man. Uh, it's it's uh, it's what Pat and I says. I've got the face for radio. So <laughs> I'm right there with you, <laughs> Bill. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the Rodcast. I cannot wait to see what next innovation you and Fish Lab will be putting out, and I can't wait to talk with you again about fishing. Thanks so much, Bill, for being on the Rodcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, like I said, just all your listeners, make sure that you guys have a really cool broadcast, man. I mean, you, you're you asking stuff that a lot of people aren't asking, which means you're in that that higher percentile. You're You're really looking to make things happen. So I appreciate it, too. Thanks, Bill. Woohoo, my listening crew. I think it's time we take a break, a bourbon break. And today I want to pour a few fingers of Buffalo Trace Kentucky straight bourbon. Now, you probably already know Buffalo Trace since the reputation of Buffalo Trace Distillery has skyrocketed since the distillery introduced Buffalo Trace straight bourbon whiskey in 1999. The distillery, though, has been around longer than that and was once known as the George T. Stagg Distillery and the old fashioned Copper or OFC Distillery. Now, no matter the name, the company claims to be the oldest continuously operating distillery in the U.S., having been built in 1792. Side note, just so you know, Burke's Distillery, where they make Maker's Mark, also claims to be the oldest, and they are listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest operating bourbon distillery. But that shouldn't distract from the fact that Buffalo Trace Distillery has been around for a really long time. But back to 1792. Interestingly, 1792 was the same year that President George Washington signed the Postal Service Act establishing the U.S. Postal Service, and important to all whiskey fans, it was the year that Kentucky became the 15th state in the United States. I'm not really sure why I know that or why I felt it was important to add that, but yes, three crucial events in 1792, whiskey and mail. I'm sure a bunch of other stuff happened too, but this ain't a history lesson. It's a bourbon break. Anyway, Given the historical significance of the distillery, back in 2001, when it was still operating under the George T. Stagg name, the distillery was listed in the National Registry of Historic Places, and then in 2013, it was designated a National Historic Landmark. Now, I'm not going to go through all the details 
of all that happened to the, that historical distillery over those years. But I do want to point out that one of the reasons that the distillery can claim to be the oldest continuously operating distillery is that because during Prohibition from 1920 through 1933, the Stag Distillery was allowed to remain operational in order to make whiskey for, you ready for this? Are you ready for this? For medicinal purposes. I think this was a genius move on their behalf, and I'm inspired to think in finding this loop that they found this loophole. So inspired, in fact, that from now on, I plan to openly carry a bottle of Buffalo Trace straight Kentucky bourbon wherever I go. And if anyone questions the legality of me doing so, I'm going to simply say that this is my emotional support bourbon, and I need it for medicinal purposes. Now, if you've listened to any of my previous bourbon breaks, you know that I love the stories companies tell about the origins of their companies and the names of their whiskeys. Of course, I love the press that Buffalo Trace puts out about the name Buffalo Trace and the origins of their Kentucky straight bourbon. And this is their language, not mine. Ancient buffalo carved paths through the wilderness that led American pioneers and explorers to new frontiers. One such trail led to the banks of the Kentucky River, where Buffalo Trace Distillery has been making bourbon whiskey the same way for more than 200 years. In tribute to the mighty buffalo and the rugged, independent spirit of the pioneers who followed them, we created our signature Buffalo Trace Kentucky Straight Bourbon. That comes straight out of the Buffalo Trace press information. It's on their webpage, and man, that is pure Americana. Oh, except for that bit where them independently spirited pioneers wholesale slaughtered those mighty buffalo to near extinction. But hell, that sure doesn't make for good press, so we won't mention it. Pioneers, buffalo, mighty, mighty. Now, one of the things I find interesting about Buffalo Trace Straight Bourbon is that they do not disclose the mash bill, yet several reviewers and other web sources speculate that BT is 75% corn, 10% rye, and 15% barley. And frankly, I'm okay with that speculation because there's no doubt that this is a corn-heavy bourbon and certainly a rye-light bourbon. It's also mid-range proof bourbon at 90 proof, with the low-end proof of some bourbons being 80 proof and others around 100. Thus, you get some of the good alcohol burn and spiciness of a higher proof bourbon and a lot of the lower proof bourbon flavor. Now, one of the things that makes Buffalo Trace such a popular bourbon is its price point, and you can find a bottle for about 20 or 25 bucks. And for $25, this is a fantastic bourbon. In fact, I don't think there are many out there who wouldn't put this $25 bottle up against a long list of $40 or $50 bourbons. Now, the coloration of Buffalo Trace straight Kentucky bourbon is a kind of reddish caramel, almost a mahogany color. And this darker tint makes sense given that Buffalo Trace is aged for at least eight years, and I've seen it listed as a nine-year-old bourbon, that aging, that longer aging time, really lets the white oak barrels contribute to that coloration. Now, the nose of the Buffalo Trace straight Kentucky bourbon favors that heavy corn mash bill and comes across as a warm, buttery caramel with hints of vanilla and honey and a little hint of almond. That sweetness takes center stage on the palate as the corn-heavy mash bill really drives the taste. I think that sweetness also manifests in a kind of toasted brown sugary taste or toffee. And of course, the oak is there too to add to the toastiness of the taste. For a 90-proof bourbon, it's a smooth bourbon when the palate first opens. But the finish of the BT is a bit more biting than one might anticipate. 
The finish introduces spice and the char of the barrels linger and overtakes the caramel sweetness. And because the finish lingers, it really becomes the primary taste memory. Now, don't get me wrong. That finish is by no means unpleasant. It just shifts the palate from sweet to spicy and char without the sweet lingering. In a lot of ways, then, I think of the Buffalo Trace straight Kentucky bourbon as being a bit more dynamic than one might expect from a $25 of corn heavy, $25 bottle of corn-heavy bourbon. That is, there's more to this bourbon than its simplicity might suggest. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard any of the whiskey pros ever dismiss BT as anything less than a fine bourbon. I also think that BT is a flexible bourbon, one that's as, as adaptable to a good mixed cocktail as it is to being poured over rocks or neat. I have friends who say that because of that spicier finish that BT is better mixed, but I have plenty of other friends who think that it's fine neat. I tend to agree with that. So those are my thoughts about Buffalo Trace's straight Kentucky bourbon. Given the quality and price point of this bourbon, I think the BT makes a great mainstay for any liquor cabinet. It's a solid daily driver and a reliable pour when you're pouring for friends. As a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the Green Parrot on Whitehead Street in Key West. The Green Parrot is an iconic Key West bar, having poured drinks for more than 100 years with an incredible history and a fantastic vibe. This is one of those bars where I could sit every day and every night just to hear the stories that this place has collected. So here's to Dame Fortune. May she smile upon you, and may you never meet her daughter, Miss Fortune. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And that's that. Let's get back to casting. All right, let's get into this week's Fishing Professor's Top 10 list. You know, there may be nothing better than light tackle fishing for Spanish mackerel. Whether from boat, bridge, pier, or surf casting, Spanish offer up some phenomenal strikes and fights. And let's face it, broiled Spanish mac is delicious as is Spanish mac on the grill. So for this week's Top 10, I'll be counting down my Top 10 casting and jigging lures for Spanish mackerel. Now, I'm intentionally not covering trolling lures here per se, and we'll focus just on casting and jigging lures. So as great as trolling lures like Boone's Hoochie Squid and other skirted rigs are, I'm leaving them out of this one. Also, all of these lures, because I'm thinking of them in the context of designated Spanish mackerel lures, rig well with wire leader, which is necessary when fishing for Spanish because of their razor teeth and aggressive feeding patterns. Okay, so let's start off at number 10 with white bucktail jigs. I don't care if you're using generic, homemade, or brand names like Spro, Buccaneer, Sea Striker, Berkeley Fusion, or whatever. White bucktails are an incredibly effective Spanish mackerel casting and jigging lure. Spanish will smash up a white bucktail, but that's also the problem with them and why they're in my number 10 spot rather than further down this list. They get smashed up. 
Mackerel's razor teeth will destroy a bucktail after only a handful of hits. Their aggressive feeding action and sharp teeth will ruin a lure pretty quick. And I prefer lures that are a bit more durable under the duress of Spanish mackerel strikes. So bucktails are on my list as a great lure, but their minimal resilience with Max puts them at the low end at number 10. This is also why you're not going to find any soft body plastics in my top 10 list today, even though mackerel will hit them consistently. They're only good for about one solid hit before they're cut in half, making them more of a pain in the ass than an effective Spanish lure. Spanish mackerel lure. At number nine, I've got diamond jigs. Now, diamond jigs tend to get overlooked a lot because of their simplicity, but it's exactly that that makes them great Spanish mackerel lures, whether you're casting and retrieving smaller diamond jigs or jigging them up and down like you might when bridge or pier fishing. Diamond jigs are exactly the opposite of bucktails when it comes to resiliency to Spanish strikes. Since they have no component other than metal parts, they hold up great to Spanish mackerel strikes. Of course, you can add a bucktail or a tube hook in place of the standard hook, which might risk some damage, but the diamond jig itself is going to be mostly impervious to the Spanish strike. Coming in at number eight, I've got the gotcha jig fish. These great metal lures are painted with great color options and are as rugged as can be. They're designed to mimic minnows and other small bait fish. They've got great eyes, and I love how these lures dart through the water on a retrieve. Now, they come in seven sizes, ranging from half ounce to four ounce. I tend to prefer the three-quarter, one, and one-half ounce versions when targeting Spanish mackerel. In the number seven spot, I'm going to go with Hoagie Epoxy Jig Lure. I love the tight pencil design of this lure, and I really like the reflective color that most models of this lure have. Now, these jigs are designed light, so they stay up high near the surface, unlike the metal lures and spoons in this list. This makes the Hoagie Epoxy Jig great for when Spanish are schooled up and smashing baits on the surface. Lots of range and size options with the Epoxy Jig Lure, with weights ranging from three-eighths of an ounce up to four ounces. But for Spanish, I recommend going with the seven-eighths ounce or the ounce and a quarter models. And number six, let's give a nod to Clark Spoon Stick Jigs. These are versatile lures that work great on cast and retrieve or on a vertical jig presentation. They weigh in at an ounce and a half and have great reflective coloration. And though they're rigged with four VMC black nickel treble hooks with stainless steel split rings, you can get them with single hooks and add a bucktail or a mylar for additional visual stimulation. Now, I suppose I could consolidate the number five, four, and three lures in this list and just say casting spoons, but not all spoons are created, created equal and not all of them cast or swim the same. So there's some significant differences in the types of casting spoons. And also, frankly, if I didn't, go, if I did go generic and just say casting spoons, like I did cowardly with the white bucktails, which really are also diverse in their designs and actions. But if I did go generic and just say casting spoons, I'd have to come up with another three lures to fill out the top 10. So I'm going to divide them up. And at number five, go with the classic and reliable Lure Jensen Crocodile Casting Spoon. The Crocodile Spoon's narrow shape and heavyweight design are ideal for casting for Spanish Max, and honestly, any other aggressive feeding fish like blues. It really is a multi-species lure. These lures are stamped and formed from solid brass, and then they're buffed and plated with corrosion-resistant chrome. It's just a classic casting spoon. 
At number four, we've got another classic spoon, the Acme Castmaster Spoons. The first thing I have to say about the Castmaster Spoons is that it's one of the best distance casting spoons there is. Its weight and aerodynamic design let you cast this thing for a mile. It's also rugged as hell, and not just against the toothy critter bites, but also against corrosion. These spoons really just don't rust or corrode. I also love the huge numbers of color options, including the new UV Baitmaster version that Acme has. And I really like that Acme has a tube tail version with a single hook and a bucktail teaser version in both treble and single hook models. All around a phenomenal casting spoon. Now, number three is a special entry for me, and I'm going to go with another casting spoon, the Hopkins spoon, and I'm going to consolidate the Hopkins shorty and the Hopkins no equal spoon. Hopkins spoons were such a huge part of my fishing life as a teenager that for years I wore a quarter ounce Hopkins with the hook removed on a necklace. I was just so committed to the Hopkins spoons. These are just phenomenal world-class spoons. And the smaller quarter and to two ounce versions are mackerel candy, not to mention bluefish again. And if you get the version with the bucktail rigged hooks, you'll lose the bucktail to the max teeth. But before those hairs get shredded, they're like adding whipped cream on top of that spoon sundae. A world-class spoon. I am of the mind that every angler should always have a handful of Hopkins spoons in their tackle because they are so versatile and so effective for so many species of fish, including Spanish mackerel. Just one of my all-time favorite lures. Coming up in the runner-up position, I'm going to go with one of the lures that I absolutely relied on throughout my teenage years, casting for bluefish and Spanish mackerel from the beaches and piers of North Carolina's Outer Banks. A tried and true Spanish mackerel slammer, the Sea Striker Gotcha. This is one of the absolute best Spanish lures out there. Its weighted head and pencil-shaped body make this a fast retrieve lure that when paused or twitched just darts around like a panicked bait fish. There are a ton of size and color options with the Gotcha, and while I like the 100 series with the Bucktail and the Mylar Minnow series, I gotta say that I'm just committed to the 100 and 200 series in the basic white body with red head. This is a lure that I make sure I have with me not only when I'm targeting Spanish, but pretty much any time I go fishing. All right, that brings us to my number one Spanish mackerel lure. But before I get to it, let's get a quick recap of the other nine. At number 10, the white bucktail jig at number nine, diamond jigs at eight, gotchas jigfish at seven, hoagies epoxy jig lures at six, Clark spoon stick jigs at five, crocodiles casting spoon at four, acme castmaster spoons at three, Hopkins spoons at number two, sea strikers gotcha. And that brings us to the fishing professor's number one Spanish mackerel casting and jigging lure. And at number one, I have got the best of the best, the Griswold of Spoons, the original Clark Spoon. There's no surprise on this since Clark Spoons are virtually synonymous with Spanish mackerel fishing and the variations on the original like the Flash Spoons, painted and hammered versions, or Spoon Squids are great. It's that original Clark Spoon that is just the best Spanish mackerel lure out there. Now, these are lighter weight spoons and should be rigged with a quarter ounce to one ounce trolling weight and then about 24 inches of wire leader to get them subsurface and also to give you a little heft for casting. They have a great flutter action as the body of the spoon is wired to a swivel that allows the spoon's body to spin and flutter without being restricted by the leader. 
They're a fast lure and work better when retrieved a bit faster than many other casting spoons. One of the things that I love about the Clark spoon is the single aft hook. Spanish tend to strike from behind, most often because they're chasing fleeing bait, so they hit them from behind. The aft hook on the Clark, uh, Clark spoon increases the likelihood of hookup, especially on short bites that, uh, that a dorsal or belly-mounted hook might miss if the strike comes up only on the tail end of the bait. Now, as I've noted, the Castmaster and the Hopkins spoons are also designed with the hook affixed to the aft end of the lure. However, they are both rigged with treble hooks, except in a few of the single hook bucktail or tube versions that are available. But they're generally rigged with treble hooks, which when you hook undersized max can really rip up their mouths before release. That's why I like the Clark Spoon single hook. It makes for a less damaging hookup. And here's a pro tip. Rig your Clark Spoon at the end of a mackerel tree rig with three or four tube lures running in line ahead of the Clark Spoon. Clark Spoon makes these, and you can buy them pre-rigged for the Clark Spoon, or they're pretty easy to rig to make on your own. You can also make a variation of these using plastic drinking straws, though those are getting harder to find as most fast food restaurants are switching over to paper straws, which frankly sucks as far as straws go and are absolutely useless as straw lures. I've also caught plenty of Spanish on just a single straw rigged behind a small trolling lure too. The mackerel tree rig also works great as a jigging rig as well. And yeah, I said I wasn't going to cover trolling lures, but certainly a trolled Clark spoon is a great Spanish trolling lure as well. So that's my top 10 list for casting and jigging lures for Spanish mackerel. As always, if you've got other lures you think I should consider for Spanish, or if there are other categories you'd like to hear me count down on a future show, just let me know. You can email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. Well, that brings us to the close of another episode of the Rodcast. I hope you've all learned a thing or two. I want to thank Bill Simental for that great conversation and for all of his leadership in the bass world. If you really want to learn about bass fishing, I do recommend you check out Bill's videos, which you can find on the internet. I also hope you enjoyed that review of Buffalo Trace Bourbon and that you found my countdown of my top 10 Spanish mackerel lures to be of some use to you. Hey, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The braid has a knot. I say again, the braid has a knot. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you and each member of my listening crew will get to spreading the word about the Rodcast. If you're enjoying it, then your friends probably will too. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top 10s, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid, S-I-D, at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, also, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing, and be sure to check out all of the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on!
The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!